When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. We were at a, at a mountain cabin at an Airbnb in Green Valley Lake. I, I took a nap on the couch and in the dream. I, I somehow knew that this was a time in the past. I was climbing the mountain in a blizzard and I realized that I was going to die out here. And I was screaming for my girlfriend, Ariel! She was up there somewhere in, in the cabin, and I realized that I was going to die. And I, I had one of those movie like, like you wake up and sit up in bed covered in sweat. Like, wow, that was an intense dream. Like, way more intense than my normal dreams. And then I forgot about it. That night, we go to sleep, and, and I'm starting to drift off. And I hear footsteps upstairs the bedrooms were in the lower level which was weird it sounded like someone pacing back and forth and i'm going like i'm looking over at her like she's not reacting to this so i guess she's asleep or i feel like she it would wake her up like i then it would stop and i think i must be dreaming like i'm phasing in and out of sleep and i keep hearing it i just so uneasy it was like really hard and i was it was it was hard to relax enough to really get a deep sleep and it was i was in you know what what they call a hypnagogic state where i was sort of like between waking and dreaming so you're kind of you're you're cognizant of what's happening but you're also like in this weird kind of altered state where it started to cross a little bit more into the sleep state and my waking mind said okay sleep brain what is that up there <laughs> and my sleep brain said i'm going to check it out and it went up and it answered, it's a middle-aged man. He's a ghost. He doesn't know he's dead. He's a father. I'm a father. He's very confused. He has no idea what's going on. He can't find his child. He's harmless. He's fine. He's not a threat. And then I went in my dream state. Okay, I feel better now. Later that night, I had a dream that... I was in this cabin, but it was many years ago and it was only one level, which kind of makes sense because the bedrooms were on the lower level and the upper level was a kitchen and a living room, which is, suggests that it was an addition. Uh, so I'm on the roof of the cabin. So there's a raised attic and there's a window and there's a girl in the room with long black hair and she seems very distressed and she can't find her dad. 
this is now I'm fully dreaming. And in my dream, I'm like, oh, I know where your dad is. You don't have to be scared. It's okay. It's okay. You should just come out, come out of the room. And she's too scared. And to try and comfort her, I put my hand on the glass. And then she puts her hand on the glass as though we're touching hands. And she then puts her face against the glass and smashes up her features and then starts to pass through the glass. And every part of her that is now on my side of the glass is a decaying corpse. And it's like that scene in The Ring, a little girl climbing out of the TV, only it's a window. I was in a state of indescribable terror and I needed, I knew I needed to get back down to Ariel as fast as possible. So I went running down the stairs and I turned around and I could see her like shrew-like, wrathfully screaming and chasing me. And then again, I, I woke up and it felt very much like more than a normal dream. So in the morning, we're having coffee and I say, how'd you sleep? And she's like, not so good. And I said, why? What's up? And she said, well, I think I was having hallucinations. And I said, oh, fuck, this place is haunted, right? And she was like, yes. Like she, we both had been having the same experience. She had also been thinking, well, he would say something if he was away. He's clearly sound asleep. He's not hearing. She had heard the footsteps and she had heard the sound of someone running down the stairs right around the time that I had the dream of being chased down the stairs. So we were, this also didn't feel good. This did, this wasn't a warm and cozy feeling. And, and, uh, we almost left, but we, we slept upstairs the second night, which I know is counterintuitive, but it somehow felt safer up there. And, and nothing happened, but man, something just didn't feel right in that place. You know, when you, you've been in an Airbnb, you get those, like your host has rated you rate your host back. And I'm thinking like, what am I going to say? You know, we're going to like write about this house being haunted and you know, obviously not. So I just kept blowing it off and, and I kept getting, they're very insistent. So I, I just kept getting, you know, finally I got the email. This is your last chance. And I'm like, all right. So I go on there and I just, I rate it favorably. I think I took off one star, <laughs> you know, just cause I felt like I had to acknowledge it in some way. And then there's a place where you can write a private note. So I, I think I wrote something like, I know this is a little odd, but we had a, an, an unusual experience in your cabin that I can only describe as an encounter with a ghost. And I'm curious if anyone else has ever had any experiences. And I submit the thing. Um, I put my phone number, my phone rang in like a minute and for whatever reason, I don't know why I didn't, I was like, I don't feel like dealing with this right now. I, I didn't, I, di I didn't answer. They, they were like desperately trying to reach me for the whole weekend. I think we were on our way somewhere for the weekend. I didn't, I was like, I just want to have my weekend. I know. So I, I finally was like, I, I, I asked for this. I got to call the woman back. So I call her back. She is like, nothing's ever happened, but I'm very curious what, and I tell her the whole story and she's like, it's a good story. You know, she's totally freaked out. And I said, would you do me a favor? Would you, would you like look into this and see, you know, you own the house, right? Like, like, was there ever an addition? Is it possible that there maybe was a death 
did someone die in a blizzard? Uh, was a father and a daughter ever living there? You know, et cetera, et cetera. She's like, I want it. So she hits me back in a couple weeks. She said, I can't find anything. Sorry, I know it's disappointing. She says, but there, but there are, I do have a few things to tell you. And I said, okay, well, what are they? And she says, okay, one is, when we bought the place, she's like, I didn't think about this when I spoke to you last, but when we bought the place, we never met the owners. When we took possession of the house, they had abandoned all their belongings. There were dishes in the sink. There were clothes in the washing machine. Their medication was in the medicine cabinet. And we never got an explanation as to why and ended up just throwing all their stuff away. The second thing is, did you turn off our cameras? I said, no, I don't. I didn't know there were cameras. And she said, yeah, there's a camera on the front porch. And we checked it. And the second you and your girlfriend walked up the stairs, it shut off. And it only came back on as you were exiting the house. The third thing is, she says, uh, she, and she was a believer. She'd had an encounter in Japan. So she was open. She said, I, I, I have a friend who's a medium and I talked to her. And she told me that something is following you. She said, it's not the house, it's the guy. The cabana here next to the pool is at stark contrast to where I've spent most of my time for Dufamet. Mosquito-infested, humid hollers and frozen badlands. But right in front of me, and just below the gentle wake of a starlit's backstroke, waits the unknown. Because as much as Hollywood glows, it's got shadows. I'm Jim Perry. This is Euphemet, a show about the unknown and our relationship to it. This time, part one of two with Daniel Noah, the followed one. I'm with Daniel Noah, a writer and film producer most known for works of horror. We walk the narrow halls of the historic Roosevelt Hotel and gaze at walls lined with portraits of stars past to escape and enter the gilded lobby of Marvel and Shine. It's reflective, just like our conversation. Yeah, it's almost as, it's almost as if walls, like, spaces like these, they... They just sort of, if not haunted, just sort of carry that vibe and that energy. Yeah, yeah. There's a narrative, there's a human experience that's sort of trapped in these walls. It's, if you're a sensitive, I think that you, I think you can kind of just feel that. I agree, you know? yeah, I agree. Like walking through a mist or something. I there's totally something agree. More yeah, I totally agree. And you could say, you know, there's, you could say, like, here, I feel it, for sure. Like, not at all be surprised if there's a dude from 100 years ago standing right there, right? Um, but you could say, well, it's, look at the place. I mean, it looks spooky. It, it, we're, maybe we're just interpreting the spooky decor as being something more than it is but I've been in a lot of places that they, people are like oh it's so haunted here and I'm like no it's not and I've been in other places where I'm like there's something up and it's not at all a dramatic environment um, so I, I don't know I don't think I don't think we can explain it away you know a del- like a deliberate atmosphere making us feel that way um, 
Yeah, I, I don't know. It feels good here. I, mean, mm-hmm. I like the vibe. Yeah, me too. Well, if 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 whatever um, gauze is separating the realities works for them the way it works for us, they can't really see what's going on on our side very well either, right? <laughs> so, I do. I have thought sometimes that sensitives might glow a little bit hotter for them, and you know they don't know necessarily why or what it means, but when they see that glow, they're drawn to it. Um, they've learned that those are the those are the blobs that <laughs> respond, you know, because um, it, it you know since my thing started and, and I, I do I, I have come to think of it in some ways as like a, a valve that had a cap knocked off of it. Um, it does seem like it's at least it, like I said it's been a little while, but but there was a period where it was like so frequent that I I did. It, it, I did start to think, am I am I attracting this in some way? Um, I think there's a fine line between empathy and clairvoyance, and and I've always had an extremely intense level of empathy my whole life to the point where it's been a problem for me. <laughs> I've had to learn through therapy to um, not let people take advantage of my nurturing qualities. Um, or to choose who I let in. You know, it used to be that I would just attract emotional vampires and they would suck me dry and leave me, you know, withered and alone. You know, you're, you're, you're nodding emphatically, yeah. Um, and then I, you know, I, I got to a point where I actually, my grandmother, who was like you, a sensitive, who talked to me a little bit about it at the end of her life, um, and I'll tell you that whole story because I'd like to tell you this story like in chronology of what has happened to me. But um, uh, I called her and I was because she was the person I always asked for help with things. And I just I told her what was happening. And she said, people like us, people look at us as toilets. She said, they shit in us and they flush it and they walk away. <laughs> my grandmother was crass. Uh, and she said, you know, I was in my 20s at the time, and she said, you know, you're lucky you figured this out so young. She didn't figure it out till her 40s, but she was the one who taught me, you have to learn how to turn it off, and you and you have to make a decision about who you're going to let into that inner circle. And, you know, in her case, it was like her immediate family and a few friends. Um, so it, it took me many, many years, but eventually I was able to, I think, whatever glow I might have been giving off to the living, I was, I, I now can control it. So it's, you know, I can, I can turn it off when I don't want to attract people that I don't want in my life. And I can turn it on when I do want to have an intimate connection with someone. But in terms of the paranormal stuff, I, I'm just at the beginning of understanding, you know, if it is something that, you know, can be tuned up or tuned down. I, all of my life, I've had incredible affinity for tales of the supernatural, and in particular, ghost stories. For some reason, they give me a warm, fuzzy feeling, and I don't know why. This was such a passion for me. I mean, obviously, I, you know, I make horror films for a living now, um, but even before I had sort of 
crystallized for myself that that was what I wanted to do. I already was a passionate lover of ghost stories, and and I would read them, and I would also try and analyze the psychology of why they appealed to me and what the appeal was of them in general. And I had all kinds of beliefs about them kind of scratching a certain itch for wonder. And certainly the idea that um, our loved ones might still be with us is a very simple bit of wish fulfillment that doesn't take a psychologist to understand. And I viewed Tales of the Supernatural as simple wish fulfillment. I was so interested in this subject that I joined a, a professional ghost hunting team in Chicago, which when I was a kid, my stepfather was a reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times, and he also was fascinated with this stuff. He had been writing a series of articles about a man named Richard Crow, who was like the preeminent paranormal investigator in Chicago, this very serious guy. And as a kid, I had like really idolized that that endeavor. It was really exciting to me. So when in, in 98, I'd been living in New York and I went back to Chicago for a year, I got the idea that I would make a documentary about ghost hunters, but none of them would engage with me in that context. And I realized that they were paranoid and they were approached a lot. So I, I got the idea to join a team as their videographer, as a way of getting footage, right? And I joined this team and they welcomed me. They were a really, really fascinating group of men. They were all white men, mostly over 50, who were, they had blue collar jobs. One was a line worker, I think one was an auto mechanic. Um, there was a guy who was deaf. I don't know why I remember that, just a memorable thing. We you know, met for lunches and finally went out on a hunt. They had a real knack for finding creepy places, for sure, but they were like the Keystone Cops. Like, like they, I, I mean, I kid you not, I remember one of them literally knocking on a, on a table and like putting his ear to the table. <laughs> like he thought he was going to hear like a response. Um, and they also were, <laughs> they were, um, real, um, they were real, like, uh, they were like easy marks. Like, I remember we were under this um, overpass once, and, and one of them was like, Harry got something! And everyone crowded around his Polaroid, which was, and it was like a light refraction that I could see, I could recreate with my eye. And they were like, it's an orb. The head guy, I think his name was Dale. I can't remember. We'd be alone and I'd grill him. I'd go, have you ever gotten hard evidence? He'd go, oh, tons. I'd go, can I see it? And there was always some excuse. Well, it's in the archive or, you know, we're in the middle of getting the tapes processed or, so I never got to see anything. And I, and I walked away from that experience really settled into my belief that there was nothing out there and that this experience for these guys was really probably a bright spot in their lives. It was a really, really exciting thing. Uh, you know, had I been older and more mature, I probably would have thought to ask them questions like, have you lost someone? What might have been driving them on a personal level? But I would be shocked if at least half of them weren't widowers. It, 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 
you could just feel the longing in them. I really cemented myself as a skeptic. I became friendly with an organization out here in L.A. called the Center for Inquiry. They call themselves a humanist organization. It's code for atheists. And a friend of mine is the director of the L.A. chapter. His name's Jim Underdown. And Jim is, in addition to running the L.A. branch, he's also an investigator. And so the amazing Randy, if you remember that guy... Has a he's you know I don't know if it's still in effect but for years he had this standing offer it was if you could prove the existence of something paranormal or uh, anomalous you would get a monetary reward so people would apply all the time and if they made it through the application process like if there was something compelling enough that it merited the expense of an or of an investigation Jim was the one who would go and do the investigation. So this was fascinating to me. So I would, t I would say like, you know, what happens? And, and it was mostly psychics on haunted houses. And he said, every time, a hundred percent of the time they'd get out there and the person would go, it's so weird. It's not happening now. I, like maybe it's cause you're here. It's, you know, the, I swear to God, the ghost is here every Saturday at seven, but it's not here today. Or uh, I don't know what's going on. My powers aren't working today. Maybe it's your equipment. There was always some excuse. And so that even further cemented me into my belief that there was nothing there. We have a company that makes horror films and we're often brought out to events that are staged at places that are allegedly haunted because it's fun, right? So, you know, if we go to a horror festival or whatever, it's, you know, they'll, they choose the Roosevelt Hotel or the Stanley Hotel. <laughs> so we were, we were out at the Stanley for, you know, it was our second year. The festival had ended and most of the people had gone back to LA. But a, a, a small group of us had, had decided to stay one more night just to kind of relax and catch up. And it was that night that there was a Ouija board in one of the rooms. And everybody wanted to do it. And I didn't because I thought it was stupid. But I kind of went along for the ride. So there were, you know, maybe, um, I don't know, 15 people in this fairly large room. And there was this beautiful handmade artisanal Ouija board that someone had just bought that day in Estes Park. And four people went on it and they started asking questions. Is there a spirit here? Blah, blah, blah. And there was no response. And they said, well, let's try a different four. And then they put four new people and still there was nothing. And they said, let's try a different four. And the night came up. We're on the Ouija board. <laughs> and, um, uh, the second I get on, and, and I'm not attributing this to me, but the second this particular combination of four people get on, the planchette starts moving. I mean moving. I've been on Ouija boards as a kid where, you know, it's sliding around and you're like, who's doing this? Or like, are we doing this unconsciously? This is one of those things that it is very hard to explain what was happening to someone who wasn't there experiencing it. It was flying around the board in a way that I don't believe any one person could have done with their fingers lightly touching it. 
It certainly wasn't me. And a couple times I took my fingers off to make sure I wasn't doing it. And I was watching everyone and I was seeing that everyone was kind of doing the same thing. Like they were like, is this me? You could feel something on a cellular level in the room. The entity identified itself as a little girl who drowned somewhere nearby, whose mother let her drown. And she spoke in these weird sort of staccato words that were a little hard to figure out. Like she would say the word swim over and over again. Swim, 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 swim. Uh, Lake, 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 lake. Mom, 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 mom. In the middle of all this, there were two things that happened that, that to me were extraordinary evidence. And one of them was that the planchette spun in a circle. And it was right around the time that she was describing drowning. And no one's fingers ever left it. But if you can imagine, we had to, our, our fingers were getting tangled like a game of twister. So we had to keep removing them and resetting them. And this thing just didn't stop spinning. It, it defies the laws of physics. There's no, I don't think that we could recreate that right now with four people who are trying to make it spin as fast as it was spinning. When it was moving, there was also a sense of it being pulled, not pushed. Like I could, it would leave our hands sometimes. It was really flying around with a lot of power. We, we started to sort of piece together what her story might have been. Um, and uh, at one point we asked her, is there anything you want us to do? And her answer was hide. And we said, hide from what? And the answer was him. And this is one of those things where you're like, it sounds like I'm making this up. This is like a good ghost story, right? This was one of those things where it felt like it was about 20 minutes. And later someone said it was like three hours. But finally we said, is there something that you would like us to do? And her answer was F-O-L-L-O-W, follow. And we said, follow where? And she said, three, two, four. And then it was like someone unplugged a humidifier. You, everyone just said, it's over. She's gone. We just knew she was gone. And sure enough, the thing stopped moving. This was one of my first experiences with how hostile people can be towards something they can't explain. About half the people in the room had left in a, like, like had a tantrum. Like, fuck you guys. Like, they thought we were messing with them. They got really mad and they left. And then from those who remained, I think half of them were, like, too scared and they left. So it ended up being just a tiny group of people. And we were like, okay, three, two, four, that's clearly a room, right? So someone looks up on her phone and says, that's apparently one of the most haunted rooms at the Stanley Hotel. So we're like, all right, we're going up there. So we go up this very dramatic staircase. And as we ascend to the third floor, we were on the second floor, there was a couple who was standing there at the top on the landing. And they were in hysterics. The woman was sobbing. The guy was like literally pulling his own hair out, saying, oh, my God, oh, my God, over and over again. We said, what happened? And they said, we saw something. Uh, we were like, what? What? The woman was incoherent. She couldn't speak. And the guy said, we, we couldn't get anything out of her. And we asked the guy and, and he said, well, it looked like, um, it looked like a figure. It was like a tiny figure. Uh, what kind of figure? He said, a little girl. And we said, well, where was it? And he said, I'm not 
there's no way I'm walking down that hall. So we said, okay, we're going to walk down the hall and you tell us where it was. And sure enough, it was in front of room 324. So there, there are two things about that experience that really got me. Um, one was what would have happened if they hadn't been there? She was waiting for us. Would we have seen what they saw? But the second, and this is, I think, a huge piece of the puzzle for those who do want to make sense of all this, is that the guy said something I'll never forget. We asked what it, it looked like, and he said, I didn't see it with my eyes. I saw it with my mind. The next day I went down to the archive at the Stanley because they ask you to like fill if you have any paranormal experiences, they want to keep them in a catalog, which they tell you when you check in and it seems really funny, but then it happened. And so I went down and I was like, hey, um, I want to fill out a report. And it dawned on me, oh, wait, there's other reports. Can I look at them? And they were like, sure. And I was like, can you pull room 324? And they did. And it was like dozens of reports of a little girl. And, and, and in fact, it was two, it was a little girl and a little boy. It was stuff about them turning lights on and off, giggling, running up and down the hallway, pulling covers off, um, locking the bathroom door. Uh, several weeks later, someone who had been in the room had actually, I don't know how he got it, but he, he, and I, and I've been trying to find it and I have to, I have to find, I should just reach out to him and see if he has it. He found a news story about a little girl with that name drowning in a lake on the property <laughs> it was the girl's name was av she she said her name was ave the 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 name in the article was like evelyn or something it was like close enough that it felt like it could have been her nickname so after that happened i was i was totally rocked i was it was exhilarating and kind of upsetting and and it, it was, um, I remember when I was a kid once, I, like a really, really young child, I, I was walking in the park and I reached up and, and I grabbed a branch and I, and, and I snapped it, this very thick branch, I snapped it off and I was still young. I didn't understand that it was a dead tree. I thought that I had super strength for a second. And I, I, I remember having this moment, this rush of like, whoa. Everyone told me this stuff isn't real, but maybe it is. And then realizing, oh, no, wait a minute. It was a dead tree. Well, I felt that again after what happened with the Stanley. It was exciting. It, it, I won't deny that it was exciting to think, holy shit, my entire worldview might be wrong. It, all of my skepticism m might be wrong. I cannot explain what happened at this place last night. When all this first started happening, it, it became like a parlor trick a little bit. Like, you know, like, oh, yeah, hey, hey, I heard you have a ghost story. And, and I liked it at the beginning. It was fun. But then after a while now, I don't really like to do it anymore because what I realize is that um, people are uh, – all they really want out of it is the is a good yarn. They're not actually in pursuit of truth. And um, – and I've gotten into some really unpleasant altercations with people, really uh, uh, close friends, who uh, get mad at me. 
Do you feel comfortable sharing sure. an incident like what it was like for you? I uh, I had dinner with a very very old very close friend like very close and she got really angry with me. I told him the story of what happened and he said, "Well, you were tricked." And and I said, "Who tricked me?" And he said, "The Stanley Hotel." And I said, "Why?" And he said, "Well, it's good for business." And I was like, "Okay, I buy that premise." But let me, you know, walk you through what happened and you tell me how they did it. And I and I walked him through the whole story and he said, "Okay, well, the Ouija board was rigged." And I said, "Okay, the Ouija board was purchased by uh, a, a very, very good friend of mine at a local little like artisanal shop in Estes Park. Um, did they plant a rigged Ouija board there for her to buy? That doesn't seem very plausible. And he said, well, no, no, that she was in on it. I said, okay. She's at that time was uh, a senior writer for the Daily Beast. You think she would risk her entire career to what, like take a payoff from the Stanley hotel to bring a rigged Ouija board into a room at the Stanley. He said, I don't know her. I said, okay, let's accept that premise. How did the planchette move around by itself? Easy. He said magnets. I said, okay, how does that explain to me how that works? He goes, simple. There's magnets in the planchette and the room under you, they had some kind of machine that was highly magnetized and they had a camera in the ceiling and they were moving it around. I said, okay, so they had military grade technology just to trick me and several other people into thinking that there was a ghost at the Stanley Hotel. He said, yes. And I said, do you see how that is more outlandish than it was a ghost? And, you know, we, it was like a fight, (laughs) Um, which I don't bring it up with him anymore. I just don't bring it up. That's the most extreme resistance to it. The, the, The more mild resistance is that I tell the story and the person immediately goes to explaining it. And, and that explanation sometimes does account for the possibility of something inexplicable, but, but they have to, they can't handle the idea of there being a loose end. So they they listen and they go, well, you know what it probably is. And then they give me like some theory about animal spirits or, you know, dream states or whatever. And, and, and it's, it's allowing for the possibility of, like I said, something paranormal or, or inexplicable or preternatural, but it's still, they can't handle what the state that I've been in for the past however many years it's been, uh, maybe five of, of, uh, oh shit, I have no idea how anything works and probably never will. Maybe after I die, I'll get an explanation, but until then, you know, I, I, pu- I put it this way. I'd be the first in the history of mankind to actually figure out what's going on. Maybe Aleister Crowley knew, maybe Tesla knew, maybe uh, George Van Tassel had something figured out. I'd be on a very, very short list of people who dedicated their entire lives to cracking the code. So, so, um, so no, I'm not ever going to figure it out. That's the likelihood is that I'm going to die having no clue what's going on. At least joined by good company. (laughs) Everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this edition of Euphemid. For more of Daniel Noah, check out the works of Spectre Vision and his podcast, Visitations. 
Thank you to our sponsors, AMC Network, Shutter, Spotify, and Anchor, as well as TM Soft's White Noise Sleep Sounds. For everything Euphemet, including how you can subscribe to the show, links to our Patreon and social media, visit euphemet.com.